Welcome to Changing Reels, a podcast that aims to change the conversation on diversity and representation in cinema one reel at a time. My name is Courtney Small. I write for several publications, including ThatShelf.com, where this show was hosted, and Cinema Access, to name a few. I'm also the co-host of the podcast Frameline. Today, I'm joined by fellow Rotten Tomatoes-approved film critic Max Colville. Max is a freelance journalist who has written for several publications, including Film School Rejects, Playboy, Polygon, and Pace Magazine, just to name a few. He's also a member of Boston Online Film Critics Association and the co-host of It's the pictures podcast max how are you doing today i'm doing great uh thanks for having me on glad you're here i think your specialties especially when it comes to animated films will come in handy for this discussion <laughs> yeah absolutely our main film today is the 2002 animated film millennium actress directed by satoshi khan the film tells the story of two documentary filmmakers who set out to make a film about a bankrupt film studio and its star actress chiyoko fujiwara max do you want to kick us off with some initial thoughts on this film oh yeah yeah, sure. From my history of exploring Satoshi Khan's filmography, it took me, I don't know if my first film, his first film, which was Perfect Blue, I think that my first experience was actually his last film because uh, Satoshi Khan passed away at a very early age. And I think I saw Paprika first. And that introduced me a lot to a lot of his themes. And it's interesting to see how these ideas run through his different movies. And one theme that I thought was particularly interesting was this idea of unusual romances. And certainly Millennium Actress has one that is prime for talking about. I think my first encounter with him was Perfect Blue, but I think Paprika was the one that really kind of imprinted his name in my mind. And Millennium Actress was one that I missed when it first came out. I missed it when it was in theaters, but I went back to it and I uh, quite enjoyed it. But it had been a while since I watched it. So revisiting again for this particular episode was almost like watching it again for the first time, if that makes any sense. Like, it's just one of those films that there's so much going on that I feel like every time you watch it, you're going to get a different experience out of. And the romance is an interesting part. Let's, let's jump off on that because there is a romance in this film that is a tender romance. It's an interesting romance, and yet it's not the type of romance that you would expect. Right, and the, the start of the movie, it has like these young men who are doing a documentary and so it's almost like they're going in the past right into Chiyoko's life and so it shows pretty much how she became a film actress and it just so happened that during the late 1920s early 1930s in Japan there was this big uprising, this big fascist movement in Japan. And so this young man who was depicted as an artist, but it looks like he's running away, stealing some kind of artwork himself. And he meets him and gives him shelter for a little bit. And from that chance meeting she has this romance that just like runs through her entire life yeah you get the sense that she's met the love of her life but we really don't get to know that much about the artist he kind of pops up throughout but he always remains an individual of mystery like i'm trying to even think back if we even get his full name at any major point but it's just one of those figures that she needs to reconnect with but he's always one step away and it's interesting because there's a, I would say, like a second romance going on. There's 
the theme of, I guess, longing. So she, Chiyoko is longing for this artist and spends essentially the entirety of the film trying to track down this artist. And then you, as the film goes on, you start to realize that there's essentially someone who's kind of been longing after her for decades. So there's this whole theme of, I guess, unrequited love, love always being out of reach. Yeah, certainly. And you could tell um, not, not maybe a romantic love, but even our director in the film, I believe he is Genya Tachibana and he is he's been infatuated with Chiyoko his entire life he, he has obviously a different kind of love for her I don't believe that he really had a romantic love for her but it's that idea of I, I guess yeah things that are slightly out of reach but I always thought what was really pinnacle for me when I when I first saw this film and outside of all the other stuff that we're certainly going to talk about was I really fell in love with this idea that why you said she didn't really know who this man was in the end not really all that important that we know who he was or she even knew who he was mm-hmm. in many ways she's you know i guess the the definition of a hopeless romantic like she there's this great line towards the very end where she talks about almost loving the chase more than the individual just the idea of of chasing after love and how that chase keeps you young and it kind of fits with a running motif because there's a lot of running that happens in this film she's physically going from place to place chasing after him but then there's several montages where they show her running and it's always like she's chasing after that thing that's not quite there but she can't stop running because by her being in the act of this passionate chase she's able to keep young and vibrant and i guess it gives her life meaning outside of her mother wanting to be just a wife and homemaker yeah right because at the beginning of the movie you learned that her father left her like with the sweet shop right like that that was the idea is that she was gonna just like stay home and like take over the family business and be good japanese wife mm-hmm. and since you've brought him up i know we're gonna dive into Chiyoko um, in more depth but i think jenya the head director for the documentary i feel like he is such an important character because i think the first time i watched it i didn't realize how integral he was in terms of the themes the various themes that go on in this film because in one hand he's essentially the audience observing learning the story of Chiyoko's life but then the way how this film weaves storytelling, memory, he essentially becomes a key part of it. He's an observer, but then he's also an active participant. And as the film unfolds, you realize that he actually had a connection to Chiyoko when he was much younger. So I just wanted your, your thoughts on, on Genya and his overall importance to the film. Yeah, and I tell you, Courtney, what, what I love about this film is that on one hand, it's very traditional, right? It's, it's very much like, oh, here's these guys, they're going to do a documentary. But then on the other hand, I feel like it's a film that could only be done in the medium of animation because the way that they're able to go into these big elaborate movie sets that Chiyoko was a part of is like amazing you really get an idea of being on the front line of where she was and how she acted in her career but your point too is not only is he there filming the documentary he is an active participant right he there there are scenes where it seems like a movie that chiyoko was in was reminiscent of throne of blood or something and Mm -hmm. like he's like this samurai helper to her and making sure that she can move ahead or like times where there's a certain piece that she needs to move keep on moving forward and he's there he's like that little maybe he appears like to us as he's there trying to just move the story ahead in a way but also maybe fundamentally he was there pushing her forward and every time he appears he always appears as a 
protector of sorts, which is kind of interesting because when you see him at the beginning of the film, he's just he's a passionate filmmaker, but he's very humbled to be in her presence. He's almost like a schoolboy with the with a crush of sorts. He can't, he can't believe he's meeting his idols. But as they're going through her past and you're jumping from various films that she's been in, he always shows up as the strong protector. And in many ways, I guess even by him making this documentary, he's still trying to protect the image of her as an actress. You know, his his sidekick is clearly younger, doesn't quite understand who this woman is or his importance. And I felt like he was this documentary was to preserve her legacy and continue to protect the vision that he had of her so that the next generation could also revel in all her great works. No, I, I certainly agree. And yeah, you could see him educating his partner throughout. What do you mean? Like, why are we doing this? This is very important. Obviously, he puts her on a pedestal of some of the greatest of the time, right? And you get that impression that that's how he thinks of her. What I wanted to ask you, Courtney, was what attracted you to Millennium Actress as a film? Like, outside of being one of the few films directed and released by Satoshi Khan, like, what is it about this film that really interests you? Well, it was one that I feel, although Satoshi Khan is revered by cinephiles, I felt like he still doesn't get the respect that he should outside of people who aren't, you know, really that familiar with, with anime. You know, you could tell, you can go to the average person and mentioned Miyazaki and they could probably tell you Spirited Away, My Neighbor, Totoro. Whereas Khan is one that I feel a lot of people still don't quite know and his styles of films are so smart that when I was thinking of lists of films that I want to talk about, I knew I wanted to include one of his films because there's a surreal aspect to it. I find like he's always thinking eight steps ahead of the audience. So when you sit down and you start first start watching Millennium Actress, you think it's going to go one way. And then all of a sudden you realize you're jumping into Chioki's life via her films. But then even then, you're not quite sure what is her cinema and what is actually her life. Like the, the two start to blend. So I just thought the way that he looks at life and art was was interesting and you know as i said i knew it was going to be a tough film to talk about because it's really tough to just explain this film to people outside of saying you gotta go see it <laughs> but i i felt like this was a really important film to talk about especially the way how it looks at love memory and and cinema as a whole no and i'm glad i'm glad you used those references and i i have to agree with you that this is a much easier entry point i think for people to his work than perfect blue because perfect blue is like this almost like horror film it, it, it goes to really dark places whereas this one why it has it certainly sorrow and difficult conversations it's not as impaired as <laughs> something that's graphic in nature yeah it's definitely a good jumping off point and I, if i remember perfect blue correctly because it's been a while since it's also a bit of a head trip you know yes. so I, I wouldn't necessarily throw people into the deep end i think this one i feel like this is the film if we had the best animated category back in 2002. This film would probably be the one that gets nominated. Right, and like I, it took me a long time, like I told you for me to catch up with the film too. I had heard good things and it certainly, in, in my radar, I never really got that same notoriety as Perfect Blue because, you know, one is a, a mind trip. I tell you, when I when I finally sat down and watched this movie, it was like the, the best movie that I that I saw in that period of 12 months. Like I, it just, it really connected with me and um for reasons that I've already explained 
explained, but like I, I love the idea that um, I thought that it was a documentary type film that could only really be done in animation, and just thought that was fascinating. Yeah, and it's one that even watching it again now, it reminded me of how much of Japanese cinema I still need to dive more into. This film tackles, you know, the well-known stuff like Godzilla, what have you, some of the samurai films, but, you know, there's one point where she's doing a couple of films about being a geisha. There's times where her, some of her earlier films was in reference to the propaganda films, you know, that was being used to, to push the fascist movement and stuff. Like, there's so much. Like, when you see this film, you think of Ozu, you think of Kurosawa, and a whole bunch of other artists where you're like, oh, I need to dive more to the classic Japanese cinema because this is really a love letter to cinema writ large but also a love letter to to japanese cinema and the way how it's distinct to the culture but yet still universal in its themes right watching it again i was you know making a mentalist it's like yeah i got to fix some of those blind spots that i have in <laughs> to, to cinema no and I, I agree it does it does a great job of just uh showing you a lot of different genres of uh even like what is japanese film right because we've already mentioned throne of blood and then you have the samurai films and why i've read that he wasn't specifically calling out any particular film it's obviously some of the genres he was touching with um what different films he had Shioko go through. And there's also an interesting, I guess, undercurrent of the power of art during times of crisis and conflict, because there's that, I guess, police officer, forgetting his name, I, I keep thinking Scar, even though it's not the Lion King, but the, uh, <laughs> <laughs> he has a scar on his face, and, you know, he's kind of portrayed as a villain for for most of the film and he's very much the representation of order strict government what have you uh trying to crack down on freedom of expression and art and throughout the film the various films that they dive into he's always that villain and then you get that point where he kind of breaks down and amidst his grief and remorse for blindly following orders and you think of all that's that long span of time there was a period of conflict and it was only when things got better that art essentially prevails and you know it has me a lot thinking of the time that we're in where there's a lot of conflict a lot of angst but for people like us cinema is one of those things that helps us get through it you know art's always there to open our eyes make us think take our minds off of things you know it's escapism it's it's just a kind of a constant and it helps feed life so i don't know i think that's another aspect that i really like about this film just you know it's a love letter to art yeah absolutely and you say that it's a love letter to art there's certainly a poignant scene like maybe i'd, I'd say like 60 percent through the film chiyoko returns to her home where there is a sweet shop and where she first helped the artists hide and she finds like a portrait of herself and how the artists envisioned her that day and that means so much to her and touches her significantly and it's pretty much the fuel that keeps her going there's another moment where you think oh things are getting down for her and every time you think she's reached the end of her line there's always a reminder of the artist and his work always seems to give her that energy like i'm thinking when they had the great sequence on the train when the bandits yep. are attacking and there's fire everywhere and she can't get the door open and then she starts thinking about the artist and the key and his art and somehow finds the strength to rip the door open and then she's immediately thrown into a completely different era different film and that's one thing i'll also point out as a side note the transitions from the various scenes and various films i thought was fantastic one of my favorite moments is not even a moment of dialogue it's just a simple one where i think she's in the samurai era and there's this chain that hooks her on her foot 
and as she's falling, she immediately lands into the geisha era. Right. <laughs> a character will say something, and that line gets finished in a brand new film in a different era. I, the, I thought that was fantastic as well, because you even see Genya's assistant getting confused. Going, Wait a minute, how did we get here? Right. <laughs> He's a, the verbal reminder that we have transitioned to a new film. You're still following the same thread. But it's going to get a bit confusing. You made the first mention of the most important artifact in this movie, and that is the key that was left behind to Chiyoko from the artist. She cherishes it, like, and she wears it all the time, and it becomes her signature reminder of the artist. And, like, a part of her promise is that one day when they meet again, she'll give him back the key or something like that. And it becomes this all important piece, right? It sort of follows her through much of the film and connects her with other characters, including the old actress that she sort of moved in on her space. I believe her name is like Iko Shimao, and there's a lot of jealousy going on, and that kind of jealousy also brings to mind a film like All About Eve, and see that jealousy between an older actress and a younger actress. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was definitely thinking about that film. I found Ioko to be a really interesting character, because she's essentially a villain throughout. Right. <laughs> I kind of felt sorry for her, because you, you know in the film industry it is ruthless to actresses of a certain age and it was never right. like Chiyoko came in thinking I'm it girl she in many ways she didn't even want to be an actress she just used film as a means to get her closer to finding the man she loves right and to travel and move place to place and what have you exactly whereas you have Yoko who's clearly given her life to this art was considered the best actress before this woman came in and now Yoko's presence reminds her that she is aging and in many ways aging is like the greatest curse of all because Chiyoko essentially doesn't age. Yoko's jealousy and the lengths that she goes to to try and sabotage Chiyoko, I found riveting to watch. While you were speaking, I remembered another film, Clouds of Souls Maria. Yes, yes. Where she's pushed out and she, she used to play like the ever part and then now she's like aged out and has to play the part that she <laughs> never thought she would play. This film, and I guess with all of Khan's work, he really does focus on putting females at the forefront and he does it in a way that you really get a honest sense of what the pressures of celebrity are like for actresses or I think Perfect Blue was was that Perfect Blue or Paprika that was just like a pop star? Perfect Blue, she's a pop idol and Paprika, she's actually a scientist and like when she goes into like the memory world, she becomes this really fun character, I guess. Yeah, but there's, but it's always putting the female at the forefront. Here he gives a lot of real definition and, and character to Their problem is they've got to deal with men like Otaki and they've also got to deal with an industry that is quick to, to push them out, always looking for, for the next young thing. What I wanted to touch again on with uh, Khan's films was you mentioned this idea of surrealism and certainly he likes to play outside the, the normal world, right? He likes to really play with what you would normally think is acceptable or what you would think of inside the box. He likes to like push the box out and like really reach out there. And certainly I, I, I think think that Millennium Actress is, for the most part, it feels pretty grounded, except for these transitions into all these films, right? And you have them playing all these different characters. Whereas if you had something like, we already mentioned Paprika, that film is just like, it goes into a total alternate reality where there's like different beings and animals and <laughs> everything all over the place. In, in many ways, it's kind of fascinating how they do it, but there's an aspect of mysticism in the film with the, the spirit that kind of haunts her. But yeah, you're right. They they keep everything grounded because 
you know, a lot of it's cinema that we know. It doesn't delve too far. Like, there's a sense of a future world and, you know, towards the end with her hopping in the spaceship. There's still, I feel, some surreal aspects in terms of just the way it jumps from her telling her story to the story evolving into the film. And then, essentially, they kind of jump out of the film back to her house. And then you see Genyo wearing some of the costumes. So it really does kind of bounce all over the place. Yeah, and like that on the surface, you could tell somebody it's a movie, Millennium Act, that is it's a movie about a woman chasing after a the love of her life and you could make it that simple but it's a film that has many layers i was talking to you before we went on air how i was looking into exactly what was going on in japan during that era that she was alive and how the fascism was going on and all these different breakdowns of law and stuff like that and certainly there's a lot more to that film if you want to give it enough of a look yeah there's definitely a lot of deep historical aspects to it and it's it's kind of interesting how they blend that with the more experimental side of, of the film. Like it, it's a film that I find, for especially in this day and age, it's a film that you have to put your cell phone down. You, know, you have to pay attention because there's so much going on. And I think it draws you in in such a way that you can't help but want to learn more like as you said you were researching the history i walked away thinking of all the films that i need to to catch up and see <laughs> the film's own existence kind of conveys this whole narrative about the impact of art you know artists and it's their relation to audience in the film you have jenya who's essentially a participant but he's also the audience as well his life has been so impacted by chioko's works that he needs to make a film and kind of keep that love of cinema and her works going as long as possible. So it's just a really interesting guess, dichotomy between the viewer and art in this film. And certainly his excitement is infectious because it gives us another reason of maybe why we need to care about this fictional character, right? It's mm -hmm. like because he is so infused about her and his excitement seems to jump off the screen at us and say like, yeah, this is why you need to be paying attention. And it does, the film does so much and uh, the running time is under 90 minutes and, you know, traditionally animation is not that long anyways because, you know, it's, it's difficult <laughs> to animate a film. It's just like how much this film accomplishes in that time. It's, it's pretty incredible too and for the most part it's all coherent they cram so much in and in terms of the animation itself i also like that they incorporated so many different styles often subtly so when i found when they were doing the the montages and the motifs of her traveling and the kind of they're showing you the the passage of time it's done in a completely different style than some of the other sequences you know how they approach nature in this film like i found I was fascinated watch, watching her walk in the snow. They juxtapose the angelic nature of snow with the recurring earthquakes. Earthquakes are always central to Chiyoko because her, you know, she says she was born during an earthquake. Yeah, and, and certainly you mentioned the earthquakes, and it seems certainly in our part of the world, I'm on the east coast of the United States, I don't define my life through earthquakes, but it seems like um, for a lot of Japanese directors, these earthquakes were very important to their upbringing. I mentioned that because a similar film that came out more recently, Hayao Miyazaki's The Wind Rises, also has a traumatic uh, earthquake sequence 
sequence, it might be depicting one of the same earthquakes that is in Millennium Actress. But this this idea that uh, the Japanese way of life is actually somehow defined by these various earthquakes is pretty interesting. It's been a while since I've watched Wind Rise, but even if I remember that correctly, like you know, war and and upheaval was an integral part of that film as well. Right. Similar similar to this, so it, it's it's interesting how the animation captures all of that because you, you know you think in comparison to popular disney works yeah because like the japanese directors are making a lot of works that feel autobiographical on paper right it's like most of these disney films <laughs> not to slight disney films i love disney films but they're they're mostly slight right they're they're fluff and for the most part they're not really detailing historical elements of the way that the, these directors were brought up yeah exactly and it, similar to you i'm a fan of disney stuff I, i'm not gonna knock them but there is I find far more risk-taking with Japanese animated films and as you said the biographical aspect adds like a certain nuance to it like you know a film like well just because I saw it recently Onward has some biographical aspects from you know the filmmakers but they put so much extra on it that depending on how you are with themes of death it may not be as hard-hitting right have you whereas here you get nothing but emotion and heart yeah the love for cinema you get you can identify with the longing that love brings and how we're constantly chasing for our perfect ideal of what love should be i'd still hold it up against any disney film any other animated work this is top-notch stuff i, I want to circle back to what i brought up at the beginning and what we alluded to with the unconventional love in his films because i always thought it was fascinating that it wasn't that chiyoko needed a man or she needed to marry this artist because she she does say that she she enjoyed the hunt more than she really thought that she was ever going to be with him that it says a lot for what they're allowed to do and give these characters what kind of love they want. I know in Perfect Blue, there's a different type of love. It's like an obsession, right? Because there's a fan that's obsessed with our, our lead idol. And I just watched Tokyo Godfathers, which had a re-release because it's just been remastered. And certainly there's there's a lot of unconventional love there between three different homeless people and the, the baby that they meet. And finally in Paprika, you learn that the scientist who is the titular character Paprika, she's actually in love with her coworker, who's this like giant man. He's not the traditional sense of beauty, right? But you can, you just, you see that they love each other. And I always thought that that was incredibly interesting and in how he depicts love in his movies. Yeah, that is that is interesting in terms of his approach because often with, should we say, family friendly animated films, up until I would say maybe about five years ago or so, the goal always seemed to to be love and marriage right whether it's you go back to the old snow white cinderella of like the prince coming in and, or the 90s boom little mermaid lion king what have you those all still had like a big find your perfect partner yeah i gotta find my man gotta find your man <laughs> and you live a happy life you have kids move on whereas in this film love is is such an interesting concept it takes many different forms but none of which are what we accept and that's what I kind of love about this film. It, it's always going against what you expect it's going to do. Yeah, certainly. Anything else you wanted to mention about this film? I'd say that I'm like a huge fan of the soundtrack of it. I know like some people think it's a little odd and maybe it, how it fits into the movie, but it's it's actually composed by this uh, Japanese composer, Suzumu Hirasawa. And he worked with Khan, like Paprika, after this as well. And with his anime series, Paranormal. 
Paranoia Agent, which just got a new release on Funimation streaming. If you're in America, at least, uh, you can check that out. He also did the late 90s berserk anime that a lot of people love. So I love the Chiyoko's theme in this. It's just the way it's introduced throughout the movie. Since you're such a big connoisseur of, of anime, if a listener was coming in and they wanted to dive into more anime, what would you recommend? Like, what films would you think? that they should check out well you mentioned some of the big ones from miyazaki i certainly my neighbor totoro and Arid away princess mononoke those are the big ones from miyazaki we mentioned i believe all four of khan's film there i, I think millennium actress and I've, I've just watched tokyo godfathers these are probably easier entries than perfect blue or paprika there was the film your name which came out a few years ago broke all the records in japan that's a fantastic film you know you, you got the standbys you got your you got your original Ghost in the Shell. You got your Akira. Yeah. Um, certainly those films aren't easy, but they're a good definition of what to expect from a Japanese animation. Oh, there, there was one other director. He is the director of films such as like Summer Wars, which uh, I think is a pretty fascinating film if, if you want to check that out. Okay, I haven't even heard of that one. Okay. His film The Boy and the Beast played oh, at, uh, okay, yes. a few years ago. Yes, yes, I, I did see that one. I, I like that one. Yeah, so he, he, he has been releasing a bunch of different films. His last film was Mirai, which is about this um, young boy. And I want to say they're almost like episodes within a movie because it doesn't feel like a coherent movie, but like different periods of his life. I wasn't too big a fan of that one. I really liked The Boy of the Beast, but yeah, I had some issues with Mirai. I think parts of that film are, are wonderful, but I had issues with the, the central character and then some of the, I guess the episodic nature of that film didn't quite work for me but a lot of people love it so listeners don't take my opinion on that one because I, <laughs> I seem to be in the minority and i i've heard from some of those people that really like it that weren't too happy with some of my thoughts on the film really i i, I tell you i agree with you courtney i don't think it's one of his strongest i i, I think mariah is fine but like I, he, he has other films like wolf children that i really enjoy wolf children is great yep and i think those are all great recommendations it's interesting because we we now live in a time where anime is so much more available to people when i was much younger back when they still had vhs and stuff like that you had to go to particular stores to find them yeah there was always a cure but to get something like fist of the north star or vampire hunter d which in hindsight is not necessarily the best entry points for, for... <laughs> no the, those are those are really hard animes yeah but i mean back then that's like what we yeah that was what it was available i think there's a wealth of material to be found in um, japanese animation and millennium actress is a, a perfect place to start if you're if you're looking for something new and fun yeah the the director of your name was makoto shinkai i wouldn't have forgiven myself if i didn't remember that name (laughs) and i must admit i still haven't seen your name ah it's it's very good oh good call call me call me back when you when you watch that one yes because he he also had that was he the same one that did weathering with you yeah that one played a tip this year as well oh, okay well max thank you very much for coming on the show where can listeners find you online yeah they can find me on my podcast uh it's the pictures i record with my co-host john gilpatrick every other week so bi-weekly and currently that that's where most of my work is i'm a, I'm a new dad so a lot of my freelancing is uh kind of slow right now hopefully you'll, you'll see me again on some of my websites that uh, courtney has listed 
the front of the show. Otherwise, um, check me out on the podcast. You can find me on Twitter at mhcolville too, if you if you'd like to follow me. Listeners, you can reach me on Twitter at smallrind, and you can reach the show at Changing Reels AC. And remember, you can change the conversation on diversity and representation in cinema one reel at a time. Thank you for listening, and you know, be sure to rate and review us wherever you're listening on this podcast.